Hello, this is Richard Outram, and welcome to the Prepare for Growth podcast series, bite-sized wisdom for leadership and personal development. So thank you for taking time out to join me. I'm so grateful for this unique opportunity. Okay, and in this week's podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce David Jackson, PhD, partner for Mercer, who advises management and boards around the world on leadership and talent strategies for a thriving, sustainable future. His assignments focus on succession planning, leadership assessment and effectiveness, workforce planning, board effectiveness, and culture change. His clients include healthcare providers, Silicon Valley iconic companies, European manufacturing giants, great research universities, major pharmaceutical firms, global financial services, and I'm sure many other. Prior to Mercer, David was a partner at Oliver Wyman, and worldwide partner at Mercer, as well as vice president at Aon Consulting. David holds a PhD in English from Columbia University. And David's wisdom bite for today is how to align organizational design to your corporate strategy. David, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. This is going to be an awesome topic. I know, as I mentioned before, um, when we were getting to know each other, I've struggled with this personally as an executive of four decades. I know companies don't have this right. So I am, um, I'm thrilled to have you on this one and for you to be able to share your wisdom bites. Well, Richard, I'm delighted to be here. And I didn't know you were so precocious. Four decades, you must have been a teenager when you started your, <laughs> your business career. So good for you for being so uh, forward thinking. <laughs> <laughs> You're already my best buddy, David. Let, let's just put it that way. You're already my best buddy. Did you want to add anything else to the introduction, David, that I may have missed? Yeah, I guess the fact that I serve on some not-for-profit boards uh, and, and mostly university boards, one in Great Britain, I, I vice chair the Global Outreach Board for Sussex University, one of the so-called red bricks that's really doing very well around the world just now. We have a new vice chancellor, my privilege to work with them, and I'm also on the Columbia University Graduate School Board. So while these are not-for-profit boards, we have real business and organizational issues we address. I think it helps me in my my advising of corporate boards, and it's a lot of fun to network with the interesting people who serve on these organizations. Well, that's an important add, David. I appreciate you adding that. So, okay. So first section here, what have you learned? Um, we're going to dive into organizational design. So l- l- let's kick it off. What questions should a leader ask? about organizational design? Do I have the right people reporting to me? I'll speak from the perspective of the CEO, Richard, if that's okay. So a CEO, I think, should say, do I have the right um, functions reporting to me? And are those functions led by the best people to serve in those roles? So that as a collective leadership and executive team, we can advance strategy measurably by having the right structure, uh, the right collection of areas of expertise and the right collection of people as a team at the top of the house. Got it. Okay. All right. And let's pull it back a little bit, David. So, you know, I guess more fundamental questions could be what's the business value proposition and its sources of competitive advantage. And then you kind of go from there. Can you add a little bit more to that? Yeah, the business value proposition is is what you deliver uh, to the people who expect 
value of various kinds. So the fact that the corporation exists, was chartered, you know, is is something in the world. Yes. Uh, and, and so there's the value proposition to shareholders uh, or private equity folk or family members. I'm working with a very prominent family office now for an enormous corporation. So, so the value proposition is what's in it for the owners, the shareholders, what's in it for the people who work there, and yeah. what's in it for the people who receive the, the, the services and products yeah. of the organization. All of those are positively influenced or not by organization design. Got it. Okay. All right. And I guess which organizational activities directly deliver on that value proposition? Would that be a, a, a another question to ask? Oh, sure. Yes. So um, there are the customer touching activities. Yes. Um, so the people that represent you uh, to uh, to those who pay money uh, for your services or products. Uh, and uh, and there are those who support them. I, I I think it's helpful to think about the process of value delivery in kind of simple terms. There are those who who create the customer experience, actually deliver the value, and then stepping back from those people, kind of the tip of the spear, if you will, the shaft of the spear is the functions that support customer centric service delivery. So I, I think that's an important question to have in mind. Again, if you're a CEO reflecting on your organizational structure and whether it's fit for, for purpose or could use some changing. And, and and how do you think about those functions, David, that don't directly deliver on that proposition? You know, by contrast, you know, can we afford that they are as good or equivalent to competition? The ones that don't are not at the tip of the spear. How do you think about those functions? Well, you want to be sure that well, they're all equally important. It's kind of it's kind of a paradox. On the one hand, only a small subset of your colleagues interact with your customers, but everyone's important in creating the customer experience and the customer value. Yep. And how to think about the successful uh, performance of those groups uh, is is I think it is helpful to to benchmark them against your uh, your your peer organizations or aspirational peers or organizations you respect, even if they're in other industries. That's certainly information to gather. How well, you know, do does the performance of the functions compare, you know, with re, with with the people you'd like to aspire to or or compete with? Absolutely. So I'm going to keep going here. So I I, I love your advice on this one, because here's a sub question to where I'm going here. So which organizational structure should we choose and how do we overcome its inherent downsides. So just talk a little bit, David, about the types of organizational structure we should be considering. What are the options we have? Well, the, the traditional hierarchical kind of, you know, just the different levels of management. So N minus one, N minus two, N minus three. So a, a, a traditional organization. These, these structures go back actually to military history, even a lot of the language. Chief operating officer and so forth come from uh, kind of the theory and practice, frankly, of of war and military military affairs. So there's the traditional structure. It, it can certainly work well enough, but what's interesting is to contemplate a flatter structure, a structure where you have um, less rigid distinctions between uh, people's accountability. So there can be a more fluid um, teaming, a, a more nimble. Looking forward uh, to organizational models that are 
a little less um, rigid. Uh, and and the, the the speed of change in in all industries in the world um, really uh, suggests that we should. It, it, it's well advised to ask how nimble can we be and still get the business of the corporation done. You can't throw out obviously all all structures and roles, but can we move away from uh, the the thinking of, of of yesteryear, which can still be effective, which is that more traditional hierarchical thinking? Got it. So more hierarchical, more flat. Um, again, in my travels, always struggled with, okay, how do you point potential organizational structure to maybe business units? Is that one of the options? I mean, t- tell us more about that. Sure. Well, that 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 that's uh, sometimes characterized as a matrix organization. Yeah. So you might have different units that manufacture, say, different products if you're a, a manufacturing concern, but then then you'll they they will all all those units will be supported by corporate functions like human resources, finance, IT. So that, that's kind of your classic matrix organization. That's certainly a reasonable way. Um, it's good to have a starting hypothesis of um what what will serve the strategic interests of the organization and to use one of these frameworks we've been talking about, Richard, and and then do the kind of deep work of well, what are the pain points and what are the advantages inherent in where we are in hypothetically where we might go to to be even more effective you're hitting your stride now Dave, because you're, you're leading nicely into the next set of questions here so where should a business start when um, approaching organizational design i think uh, a good place is uh interviews with people at the top of the house and throughout the organization about you know the the structure that we have which is animated by processes that you kind of run through the structure, you know, what, what, what are the pain points? What, what, what frustrates you? What do you say to yourself? Oh my goodness, if this could be different, it would be a good thing. And then what are the advantages of the current structure? So it's very helpful to gather information confidentially, candidly about the pain points and the advantages of the current structure. Got it. Got it. Okay. And that's more of a kind of um, internal view. Are there any tactics people should be thinking about from a benchmark and outside standpoint? You know, how do, how does the competition organize their, their business, you, you know, best practices for maybe, you know, Mercer, who knows, right? Is that something that initially people should be thinking about when approaching organization design? Well, when I reflect on you know, some recent, um, projects, if I may, as a consultant, which have gone very well, we have concurrently done the internal look at pain points and advantages of current structure. And concurrently, we've gone to organizations uh, that uh, our client has selected for some deep exploration about how they're structured and how well that structure is working. That, that it can be um, you know, kind of tricky to get the information. I don't mean tricky in a pejorative sense, but because if you're if you're asking on behalf of a competitor, another organization may not want to share very much, but there are ways to infer even from you know public documents, annual reports, 10Ks, and so forth, what the structure is, and and we can see the results in business terms, you know, through share price and so forth. But yeah, it's a great point, Richard. Thanks for bringing it up. I think it's best to concurrently be looking outside and inside, and and do so in a disinterested, parallel fashion. Then bring the data together and say, well, what's the big picture? What we've learned. Perfect, perfect, wonderful. Okay, and so what are the d- design principles that are crucial for creating structures 
that can quickly adapt to the changing needs of a fast-growing organization. That was quite a well, mouthful. No, it's 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 well put. <laughs> so the uh, the design principles are essential. Uh, there's no way to do this work without you know having on a piece of paper that everyone look at and agree to. You know, here are our design principles that we will uh, follow as we contemplate new ways of organizing ourselves going forward. Right, and uh, some of them, as I reflect on many processes over many years, and particularly a good many processes over the last year or two, post-COVID, in the era of the digitalization of everything, by the way, now turbocharged by AI, of course. That's so uh, so, so yeah. there are some, so I knew we'd, we'd get to AI. Yeah. So there are themes around design principles. And then, of course, there is great variation. Uh, so the, the, the themes tend to be uh, the categories uh, within which the design principles fall. One is sort of talent management. And, and a typical theme is let's have a structure that is going to promote inclusive leadership and even representational diversity at the top of the house. Uh, another theme often is, you know, what reflects uh, what's good practice in our industry, to your point about benchmarking. Uh, another theme is, you know, be sure this aligns with our strategy in the very practical way. How do we make money? How can we generate net operating income even more effectively? And, and so it, it's a mistake, in my view, and you're asking my view, to yeah. have more than seven, six, seven, eight design principles. Four or five is fine. A dozen is too many. Two or three is probably not sufficient. So oftentimes it's good to kind of uh, learn what others have used to design principles as a starting point, and then be sure that the entire leadership team and frankly, the board agrees with what the design principle should be for the organization restructuring process. I love that, Dave. And is there in that seven to eight design principle, is there one that rises typically to the top, David, and maybe a non-negotiable? Or they all kind of created equally to start with, and then there's a there's a process to get to the few that matter. I think that most organizations um, are well advised to have uh, a, a design principle that 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 kind of articulates. Let's be nimble and agile and fluid, and how we go about doing our business. Um, and that that's because a lot of executives are not new to the executive role and have traditional ways of thinking about things. I say that working as I do with some Silicon Valley uh, clients um, where, um, you know, the, the, the CEO is, is, could be in, in her or his 20s or 30s. But um, but in most cases, I think just really memorial memorializing the importance of agility that that that's a good one. And beyond that, I think they should be specific enough that they are not so transferable from company to company. I think more in terms of the categories I mentioned as a kind of taxonomy rather than design principles that verbatim can be migrated from one organization to the other. If that makes sense. Okay, I love that. Okay, and I have to ask you this question now. <laughs> because this is again a struggle that I've come across, uh, you know, in the past decade or so, right? So, flatten the organization. I understand, uh, you know, the agility behind decision making and the fluidity of information, right? Rather than the typical hierarchical structure. Um, 
in your view, David, what's an appropriate, quote unquote, span of control, span of responsibility? You know, I've had people say, you know what, you know, if you're really going to be effective as a leader, you know, maybe four to five at most. And I've heard others who said, you know what, we're not flat enough, especially the, as you mentioned, the younger leaders, we need at least 10 people reporting to you. <laughs> how, how do you view that? Um, this is a curiosity question, and I think it's a good one because I've had struggles and back and forth in business that I've been with. So tell me more. The least number of workable direct reports to the CEO is, I believe, the right answer. That can be as few as four or five. Yeah, I was actually with the CEO um, in Chicago a uh, week before last for a full day secret offsite away from his main place of work. And we filled a whiteboard with post-it notes of different colors. And, and, and I kept encouraging him to get down to four or five. And because he's changing the entire value proposition and the global footprint of his organization, he said, I hear you, but I need to have my, my head of globalization report to me. Once we're grown the size I want to be, I can tuck that person under the chief operating officer for instance, right? And because I'm digitalizing everything in my business model, I need a chief digital officer reporting to me, uh, a chief digital transformation officer. A couple of years from now, that person can probably report up to the CIO. So I let him talk me into eight direct reports. We had a friendly tussle about it. But all things being equal, I prefer, I prefer fewer uh and, and, there, and there can be good reasons to have more, Richard. The reason I uh, prefer fewer is some CEOs um, resist, many don't, but some do resist having all this time on their hands. It sounds counterintuitive, but particularly folks who are new CEOs, that would be the case of the person I was just describing. They say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not running an operation anymore. What, what do I do with all this time? The answer is, you think strategically is what you do with all this time. You hang out with your board, you meet with other CEOs. And, and, and so people either take to that or, or, or they don't. But if you have um, so many direct reports, that can be a sort of smokescreen behind which lurks the impulse to continue to be an operator as opposed to a chief executive. That's a brilliant answer. I love that. David, and, and so I'm going to keep going with this point because I think it's great. I I, I love this, this conversation. Um, in this day and age, with the agility of businesses and, you know, global competition and obviously technology moving as fast as, as it does, and particularly now to your point earlier about AI, um, what's a classic direct report structure look like to the CEO? I mean, are there non-negotiables? that just survive, for example, every company should have a CF, I mean, a CEO should have a CFO direct report and a chief HR officer and a CTO. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, in almost all instances, it's essential to have the chief financial officer reporting to the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, in almost all instances, it's essential to have something like chief operating officer sometimes called the chief administrative officer. They're different roles, but they're they're kind of like an overlapping uh, Venn diagram. I would say as a human resources consultant, though I have also been a management consultant at Oliver Wyman doing strategy and operations work, but as an HR person these days, I would say the chief 
HR person, preferably called chief people, chief human capital officer should also report. Yeah. Um, I think information, you know, it's, it's whether it's chief, chief tech or uh, information officer or digital, whatever, uh, that, that it's just, there's just too much inherent value in the data any organization has that should be capitalized on, not to mention that all business processes are being digitalized. Um, chief legal officer, it's awfully hard to say that shouldn't be a direct report uh, to the CEO. An interesting question is, is chief marketing officer, right? And, and that really depends on how business is made um, and, and whether one is selling to customers or the customers of your customers indirect directly. But those are some of the roles that probably should be considered for reporting up to the CEO. And I love doing this exercise. I'm, I'm I, I, in person with post-it notes. And of course, there's all kinds of wonderful software now where you, where you can do post-it notes virtually. And, 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 and I was recently doing that with a client in Australia. Uh, so, um, so you can have fun with this exercise, but um, I think those are some of the roles. And let's not forget that regulatorily, some of this is required. I'm working with a very significant public transportation agency in a major American city and their regulatory reasons. The person actually wanted a CFO to report up through COO and, and it's a matter of regu regulation and bond issuing and so forth, that couldn't happen. So you always have to bear the re regulatory stuff in mind. Awesome. Okay. So now we're going to go deeper. Now we're going to get into the trenches now. <laughs> All right. So what indicators signal that leadership style or structure might hinder the sustainable growth of a fast paced environment? Yeah. Look at the business results. If, if you're, if your sales um, and your profitability, um, you know, the top and the bottom line, right? That's kind of what matters, right? Are, yeah. are flat or trending down, and that's not a strategic decision because you're regrouping or restructuring, then um, a culprit is bound to be, or one of the culprits is bound to be, either the structure of direct reports to the CEO or the people in those roles or both. Got it. Okay. All right. Okay. And so what organizational design issues do most leaders misdiagnose? Tends not to be so much structure as people, in my view, Richard. Um, you can make an argument for most top of the house structures unless they're just illogical. And sometimes that happens that things have evolved over time organically. No one in the board or the CEO suite is really, or CEO spot is really giving serious critical thought to it. But apart from that, mo most most structures can be serviceable enough. The big issue typically is executives who have um, unhelpful uh, skill sets or more importantly, personal attributes just as kind of human personalities. Understand. I understand where you're going. Okay, so... Let's play a little bit of a game because I, again, this is stuff I've seen, particularly in the mid-sized, fast-growth type organizations, and there's symptoms. There, So I'd love to hear your viewpoint on this one. So one of the symptoms is competing priorities. Too many priorities where you really don't have a priority. What's a common design challenge there? Well, that, that can be uh, people who are competing with each other for resources or the attention of the CEO or, frankly, executive compensation, right, in the form of incentive uh, payouts and so forth. So um, that can also be symptomatic of a weak CEO, 
honestly, a person who either backs off of conflict resolution or is over political and plays people off each other. Uh, many things can, if you peel the onion on competing priorities, those are some of the layers that you might come to in the vegetable. Absolutely. And, you know, poor governance, um, David. I mean, you know, you set strategy and, you know, priorities should be pointing towards the strategy of value proposition and not a bunch of other stuff, right? And that's always, that's always particularly a fast growth company I found. They've always been a major, major, major issue. Okay, another symptom, unwanted turnover. What's a common design challenge there? Yes, it, it, well, it, it can be people uh, in roles who uh, alienate others. Uh, that, that, that's both design and the people who are within the roles you know, of, of, of the design. But uh, turnover is, is, is often a case of leadership having an unintended negative impact on others. Um, from a pure design point of view, you might have high turnover if a person is a very talented, let's say data engineer, data scientist, and, and IT is either poorly led or subsumed under operations and doesn't have the visibility or, or the resourcing it should. So, so there could be a pure design issue behind that symptom. There could also be a leadership issue. And, and also what I found, um, David, is bad role design. The clarity of the role and the clarity of the reporting lines. Here, here. I found particularly in the fast growth, you know, in that white water phase, so to speak, as I like to describe it. Um, I've seen that many, many times, you know. Now, I love talking with you, Richard, because you are uh, a thought leader and, and, and a great communicator and also very experienced executive, both functionally and also from bottom line perspective. So I totally agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot from what you're uh, saying and enjoying our dialogue very much. No, likewise, likewise, please. Um, another symptom, inaccessible bosses. What's the uh, design challenge there, would you say? Well, it can be. Uh, that can be a case if you have too few direct reports to the CEO and people are just swamped. So I'm um, working with a, an organization now where the chief operating officer uh, kept adding, you know, to her wonderful person, hugely talented. And because of weak governance the, the and, 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 and the CEO who was a bit too focused outside on their personal brand and getting famous on big podcasts like yours and so forth, the CEO kept you know, expanding their territory, invading nearby countries. I'm speaking metaphorically here and building an empire. And all of a sudden, this person is like running a ridiculous, I mean, a ridiculous amount of the organization. And, and so uh, what we're doing there now actually is, is working with the person herself. So she's bought into it to trim uh, her direct reports. And actually, the, the, the Archimedean lever to make that happen well is looking at her KPIs and you in lining them up and it's too many for any human being, even someone as gifted as she to deliver on. And then the CEO kind of, you know, found the, the, the resolve and strength to say, actually, you'll do way better in your bonus if you're doing better with fewer KPIs than having fun with a dozen KPIs and all, all these little principalities in your empire. So that that's a, kind of a real live example. I'm blinding it carefully because um, I want to respect confidentiality, but that's a not uncommon story. <laughs> of course, of course. All right. Last symptom I have in my uh, bag here is, which I've seen again and again, cross-functional rivalry. What's the design challenge there? 
Wow, it's it's just um, clarifying role. First of all, we just did this actually in an offsite, uh, not so far from where you are right now, actually. And um, the uh, people had uh, assumed that they were CEO direct reports, that they were accountable for things where it wasn't really business logic. Uh, and, and it was, it was really more, in, in that case, it was more my bright person, someone you covet, and I might like one of your bright people and and, and that, that that led to some you know, crossing of the wires, right, of accountability and people trying to poach each other's talent and led to some, uh, you know, some, some tough conversations, which were actually worked through. It's amazing, you know, just, just bright sunshine in a dark corner of, of corporate disagreement or dysfunction. Oftentimes, that's all it takes, a little sunshine and fresh air and good people want to do the right thing, will do the right thing. And that, that solved that very quickly. It's a wonderful organization. We just had a little bit of a of an issue to work through. Got it. And how does potentially misaligned incentives play into, you know, play into the cross-functional rivalry? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, if, if people are uh, either believe or are told that they are accountable for doing something that's outside of their bailiwick as logically understood, uh, then uh, that will engender all kinds of feeling of rivalry and competition. Sometimes that happens because the incumbent uh, in the area whose uh, activities are being sort of assumed by another functional area, because that person isn't, isn't as strong and, and, as they should be. And in many cases, they could be developed. I mean, executives can be developed, CEOs can be, board members can be. One is never too far along in, in a, a career not to benefit from development. And so a good answer to that can be just if a person has a deficit, either of, you know, sort of leadership attributes or technical know-how, be sure that you know, help them become more confident and effective. And, and then and then you, you, you'll tend not to have that kind of you know, poaching on each other's territory. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's great. Thank you for that, Dave. That's a great answer. Okay. Sure. Um, a little bit from the outside in now, um, as you advise companies. So you do all this, we redesign the organization. How do you evaluate the health and effectiveness of an organization structure in sustaining rapid growth, of course? All right, well, just, just look, at, uh, look at the business results, sort of uh, the explicit uh, goals, the KPIs by unit, by function, led by each of the CEO direct reports. And I, I always start, I know I'm sound like a broken record, I always start with the business outcomes and the observable, measurable, rewardable business results. So that's first and foremost. And then big, I'm a big fan of doing assessments like workforce engagement or satisfaction assessments, various ways to do those. A lot of them are online now. We, there's a digital focus group capability that can allow a lot of people to provide input to how they feel about their employment and where AI actually kind of real time cycles through ever more targeted questions and a defined focus group uh, sort of uh, experience. It's, it, it's a very innovative way of, of gathering that kind of data. It's also good to gather data on the organizational culture. There are ways to do that. Uh, there, there are frameworks for culture. Mercer has one, but many other organizations do, and many of them are just fine. So I think I, I think just get, getting the, 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 it's like art and science, the science of business outcomes and, and measurable achievements, and then the art, if you will, of culture, and engagement, put it all together for a scorecard. Brilliant, love that answer, love that answer. Okay, all right, and so what leadership qualities or structural elements facilitate quick 
yet informed decision-making in high growth scenarios? I would start here with leadership attributes and a person having, uh, whether the CEO or the direct reports to that individual, or even, you know, quicker to down, I think learning orientation is the most important thing of all. A restless curiosity accompanied by humility um, is um, worth its weight in titanium. And I would like to say that's a common attribute uh, in executive ranks. And, and everyone who ends up being a senior person almost always is a good, well-intentioned, talented person. But uh, it, 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 you can become a little complacent in, in your vigilance about who you are and the impact you're having on others. And, and sort of maintaining the humility and the learning orientation can be challenging when people look to you and say yes to everything you say to them. <laughs> That's just human nature. <laughs> right, right, right. No, this is such a, a fluid conversation, David. I love this because you, you've led nicely into, I want to talk a little bit about, about leadership development and capability. So on that point you just mentioned, what methodologies or assessments do you employ to map leadership capabilities and potential gaps in fast-growing organizations? I'd recommend everybody do assessment within three categories. And the first is multi-rater assessments, the traditional 360. Yep. You can also do a 180 or a 270, right? But any kind of multi-rater, multi-perspective gathering of information about how people experience the leadership and collegiality of somebody, do something for sure in that category. Lots of ways to do it online, through interviews, right? But 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 do something rather than nothing by way of a multi-rater assessment. The yep. second piece is the world of psychometric assessments from industrial and organizational psychology, Many people will be familiar with the Hogan, H-O-G-A-N, suite of assessments. It's, uh, it's a global organization run by a very esteemed academic, a professor of organizational industrial psychology, Bob Hogan, been around for years and they have you know, lots of data points. And so the psychometric will complement the observational data from the 360 by saying, here is the deep science of human personality and, and will show how people will predictably derail under stress within a framework of 11 common derailers. There's some very good books uh, on, on the derailer uh, sort of structure and taxonomy. Yep. So, so the first multi-rater, the second psychometrics, and the third, we're big fans of behavioral event interviewing, right? So, so having significant time, a couple of hours with the leader and asking, questions and the questions behind the questions about where have you done this thing before or something analogous? How have you known that it worked uh, relative to what you're expected to be doing in your current role or the role you might be in a succession plan to do next? And so we put these together into a kind of scorecard. It's a little bit like a baseball card or a soccer card like they, or a hockey card like they have in Canada, where it's all the stats Right at the top are the, the 360 qualities, and then across the middle, the Hogan derailers, and across the bottom, the findings from the BEI. And when you when, when people do succession planning, whether it's the board for the CEO or the C-suite for rising leaders, you actually have these, these, these collections of data on individuals, which ensures that the confirmation bias doesn't hijack the whole process of talent selection development, but that you have a 
fact and evidence-based methodology for selecting and developing talent. And you hit on a great one, and I would my wheels are turning, David, about confirmation bias. And so, um, so we do the tests, you know, multi-rate, psychometric, and you know, behavioral event um, information. What's the blind spot that you usually see? You've got this independent, you know, you've got objective information, data. I'm the human being, all right? And, um, you know, I've got all my warts and everything else. What's the challenge to actually make, take that information and potentially change behavior for the better? Well, there, 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 there's the blind spot uh, that that uh, occurs with the person making the talent selection. So despite all the data, I like that person because I have a hunch they'll do a great job. Oh, by the way, they remind me of me when I was a bright young person, right? So that's a, that's a confirmation by. And then the blind spot on the part of the person who's been assessed, because we always review all this data with the person, which itself is a great developmental intervention, building self-awareness. Uh, what yes. should be on your developmental agenda? Yep. The blind spot tends to be um, around these derailers, right? So there's a framework. One of them is volatility. Another is perfectionism, right? So, so the sorts of things we see in the people we work with doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you tend to do stuff that can annoy other people, particularly when you're under stress. And and the blind spot is anything where one is at high risk for for alienating other people, you know, most people, when I show them these data, they say, that's not me. That can't be me. And I'll say, well, do me a favor, take this report home, show it to your spouse, your significant other, someone who knows and loves you, and see what they think. And the first time I took one of these tests, I, I and I said, this isn't, it, it's a, it's a flaw in the data. This can't be me. I'm not that person. I showed it to my wife, Patricia, who said, this is uncanny. How did they get you so perfectly? I said, but but you're supposed to be on my side. She said, I am, buddy. And being on your side means I want you to not do the stuff that annoys people quite so often. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so blind spots, we're human beings and we have blind spots. Of course yeah. we do. It doesn't mean we're bad. It just means that we need a, that humility, the learning orientation, caring for others, trying to be a good colleague. It's pretty simple, really. I love that, David. I love that. Okay. So how should organizations evolve their design and leadership approaches to stay agile and adaptable amidst all the rapid changes in the market? Assume it's always an airplane that is flying and you are doing maintenance while you are five miles up in the air. In other words, never stop. It's it's, it's, it's continual uh testing and review and improving uh, the structure. So I, 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 I say to my org design clients, you have V1.0, we're doing V2.0. And by the way, 3.0, 4.0, they are lined up. And the faster they come and the faster we change is what indicates the, this likely success over time of this process we're embarked on. And people say, but David, how can that be? We just want to have the new next best thing. I said, the best thing is not a thing. The next best thing is a process of continual change, change that is frequent enough that it feels like a second nature. Not willy-nilly change that makes no sense, but change that adapts. I mean, we all had to change to COVID. And how many, how many executive teams are still 
saying everyone must be in the office five days a week. It's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Get over it, right? And so, so just letting go of those those preconceptions and being open to change. And by the way, if if a new leaner, flatter structure is serviceable for some months or even years, that's fine. I'm not saying change for change's sake, but just be very open. Be change welcoming. View change as a good thing, not a scary thing. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. We're hitting on some deep points here now. <laughs> so less resistance, open to change. Um, when you take your clients and you consult with them, there's a next phase of actually trying to help change that behavior as best you can. Is that the realm of executive coaching? Coaching and other developmental uh, activities, right? So I, I am an executive coach. I work one-on-one very confidentially with, with CEOs of some very large global and some mid-sized and some very small enterprises, private as well as public. The methodology is the same. And personally, I love the variety of coaching opportunities most coaches do, right? Because it's, it's different contexts. So it's the rare CEO who wouldn't benefit from coaching. And frankly, most have a coach already, right? Or have had coaching. So it's not a, it's not like 30 years ago where it was, you know, a, a mark of something, yes. if not shame, at least mild embarrassment to have a coach. Everyone has a coach now. And, and the question is, how well is it working for you? Um, but I'm also a big fan of thinking of leadership as a collective, not just the heroic individual. And I've been working with an executive team and a board uh, in uh, Sydney for an Australian multinational. Was there a lot in person before COVID, starting to go back again. Uh, and uh, we, we really thought about um, what is the executive development for the team as, as this organization from Paris grew into Scandinavia, from Kuala Lumpur grew across, uh, across Southeast Asia, et cetera. And it's been really intriguing to, to, to have folk come together and say, how can we support each other? How can we be a collective leadership? And they actually come to Sydney, then they go back to Paris and, uh, and KL and Hong Kong and, and Buenos Aires. And, 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 but it, it's been really admirable how they have, in the spirit of humility and learning, come together as a team of flawed human beings who intend to do well for their people and therefore for their customers. Actually, they're doing extremely well as a business corporation. And that sounds like a health, that's where it starts, David. It sounds like a healthy organization starting with the executive team. Because that doesn't always happen. We all know that. <laughs> well, well put, Richard. And I don't know how provocative you want to be, but one could just close one's eyes and imagine prominent <laughs> executives who are, let's say, you know, toxic. I mean, let's be yeah. at least at least the public personas they choose to promote are are really are are the antithesis of anything you'd ever read in the management or leadership literature about how to show up and do things. And there could be, I guess there can be strategic reasons to be that way if you want to be provocative and get a certain kind of uh, notoriety and publicity, but nothing about the study of organizational health and effectiveness would say that you, one should be anything other than, well, as the golden rule says, and all the world's great religions have some form of the golden rule be to other people the, you, you wait, the way you want folks to be to you. Love it. The ultimate rule, David. The ultimate rule. I've said that, I think, hmm. in all the episodes of this podcast, I must I must have talked about that at least 10 times. All right? I mean, it's, um, it's the ultimate rule. So thank you for saying that. And 
bringing that to the to the surface of this conversation. The most important point. Thank you. All right. So how can a organization um, design foster culture of innovation while maintaining operating efficiency, David, during rapid scaling? And we can roll a bit of AI into this because you mentioned that at the, at the forefront and you know we're going to go there. If you want to roll it into the, that question, you can do. <laughs> well, AI can, uh, if um, managed uh, thoughtfully and prudently, <laughs> Yes. With with the right checks, you know, baked into the the application of, of of all the many wonderful things that AI can do, and I'm working in big pharma now, where it's revolutionizing drug development and, and just every industry. It's 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 terribly exciting what's happening. So I, I think that can be the accelerant, that can be the jet fuel, the AI appropriately adapted to your organization. But it is an interesting question, you know, how do you run the operation while being innovative? And um, I, we've seen some organizations go overboard in the innovation department and shift things around. And there are actually some famous cases of that. They should get ahead, get over their skis, as people sometimes say, uh, and, and how uh, open they are to shifting customer value proposition and product development uh, before they're even sure there's a market there, right? And then you'll be punished uh, by, by the investment community. Here's how, here's how I think about it. Take the bread and butter business, how you make money today, how you made it yesterday, how you'll make it you know, next month and, and probably for the, the next year or so. And be sure that is absolutely ironclad and dependable and working well. But be innovative at the same time. I think it's a matter of, be, of testing for innovativeness in the thinking, in the personal attributes, and even the personality of the executives. So you can have a head of of, mar of uh, manufacturing. You can have two heads of manufacturing. E I actually just helped a manufacturing client do this in Minneapolis. who are equally skilled and knowledgeable about the manufacturing process. One of them is a little nervous about change and, and is concerned about the risk of innovation. The other is risk welcoming, loves innovation. On a day-to-day -day basis, there's no difference in how skillfully they manage the manufacturing process. But the mindset the culture they build, the openness to someone in my manufacturing team that's just happened in a plant in Minneapolis is doing something new. Person A said, ooh, new, not so sure I like new. I'm simplifying it, right? Person B said, new, let's put it into a little experiment and grow it. And actually the board now has asked that person B be advanced in succession planning for the CEO spot when that person retires in several years. So so I think I think I think that's I think that's how you square the circle is is you run the operation skillfully, but you do so within a mindset and culture of welcoming innovation and change, not dreading it. And I have to add in the, the obviously the famous book from Carol Dweck about mindset, because you mentioned that a few times. So um, growth and fixed mindsets and so forth. All right. Um, so right. how do you think about that in the context of? innovation and being open to those new ideas and being able to enable the organization it's at its social fabric to think like that now i i love your big picture thinking and your values-based thinking along with your very focused kind of professional management uh view on things richard it's because that's how i see things as well we, we don't stop being total human beings as managers we, we bring our full selves 
and, and, and to that role. And the more we try to cut off or suppress parts of our essential humanity, the less it works, and <laughs> it actually undermines the whole thing. So, I think we have. I think we have a meeting of the minds about you know thinking about uh, full human experience and human personality and leadership in these roles. I loved it. And you said it again. Oh, my God, this is uh, you're a kindred spirit. I can tell you that right now, David. Uh, you know, everything you're saying completely resonates with my entire being. But um, yes, I do believe however you want to def define conscious leadership, I'm sure there's many differences. But for me, it's just very simple. It's bringing your whole self right into the, the organization, your leadership role, whatever it's bringing your whole self. And there are many dimensions to that, you know. Indeed, no, and, and and back at you, I've I've enjoyed our conversations um, leading up to this one and this one, perhaps most of all, I feel like we're thinking together and having a, a dialogue in real time. It's great. Thank you, thank you. We'll move to the to the next round here, um, fairly rapid here, uh, David. So, uh, what would you change in any area of life, not just business? I think for people to be more patient with each other. Wow. To empathetically um, listen beyond the strong statements that everyone seems to make these days and to listen for why those statements are being uh, made and, and to ask respectfully and in a very humane fashion. I hear what you're saying. Let me be sure I've heard it right. What's what what in your experience you're reading, Lee? Lead you to say that, and and just in a, in, a, in an open minded, supportive person to person spirit, really to have more of that patient listening, thoughtfully to the other person's view. I wish I wish there were more of that in the halls of government, and in families and neighborhoods in the world. Beautifully said, and I couldn't agree with you more, David. Ha! Huh. I couldn't agree with you more. Fabulous answer. Thank you. What are you grateful for in any area of life, not just business? Well, we just had our first grandchild and not much in life exceeds good press, but actually being a grandparent <laughs> is even more wonderful than the wonderful things you hear about it. So that's, that's, that's very parochial and very selfish so sorry Richard but that's giving me pretty major joy right now he is uh, 16 months old and speaking oh. and talking and recognizes uh my wife and I and calls us by our you know names as his grandparents and uh, god bless you that is beautiful <laughs> it's pretty great completely, completely cool that's awesome okay the quick round amidst rapid expansion how important is it to reassess and potentially redesign org structures? And what indicators signal the need for such changes? It's essential for every organization to do it all the time, and you don't need triggers. If you haven't thought within the last year about organizational structure, you are at business risk for underperforming and perhaps even hitting obsolescence. It is a perpetual urgency. Brilliant answer. Love it. What leadership assessment tools would you recommend using? If I had to choose one of the ones mm -hmm. I mentioned before, I would say it, it's the it's the psychometric because it's the most fact-based scientific one. It, it comes from 
very vast and deep research into human personality and applied it in the context of, of industry. So I'd say a psychometric, like the Hogan test. There are others, people like Myers-Briggs, there's the DISC test, there's a whole, there's Fire B that was developed for the submarine service in the World War II. It, some companies use it. It's, there are, I, I'd say it's, it's used one of them that has a scientific basis into the predictive data about human personality rather than not doing that, because otherwise the confirmation bias will do you in. Right. Um, you know, the common ones, Myers-Briggs, um, you know, disk assessment and so forth. How, how does that kind of interplay? You hear that everywhere, right? And there's multiple others, as you mentioned. Um, I guess over the years, you know, I've done multiple Myers-Briggs over the years, and sometimes this, the assessments have changed. So hopefully I'm evolving in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I'd like to see kind of the data laid out uh, yeah. you know, uh, horizontally for, for Richard. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say about those more common tools that you hear about? I've never seen a bad one. I've never seen one that doesn't add value. If we're talking about the universe of those that have real, you know, currency in, in, in big organizations. I mean, so, some some people are are more fans than others of, of Myers-Briggs or Hogan or any of them. I think they're all fine and, and more than fine if you use them for what they're intended for. DISC, really more communication style. You know, Myers-Briggs comes out of a study that that the mother-daughter team did with Jung himself out of Jungian psychology. So once you understand what the methodology is and the best applications, I think they can all produce a lot of value. Perfect. Okay. Um, let's talk about any favorite leadership books that you would recommend, maybe two or three. Well, I'm not really a fan of leadership books. I okay. mean, a lot of people have a good idea they give a talk at a conference. It turns into an article for a management review. The article gets stretched out into hundreds of pages, longer than it should be. So um, the traditional book about leadership um, is something I'm a little skeptical of. Now, having said that, uh, I do love uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm -hmm. So Kahneman okay. was, of course, uh, won the Nobel Prize for economics because he applied psychology and with, with Adam Svarsky created the whole science of behavioral economics. So I, I think that is very helpful. He didn't set out to write a book on leadership, but I can't imagine a book that has better applications for leaders and understanding how the human mind uh, unfolds uh, reflexively and proactively. So Kahneman thinking fast and slow. And I, I would recommend that everyone uh, reread Shakespeare's Henry IV, part one and two and Henry V. And, and to see the journey uh, from Prince Hal with his buddy Falstaff being yep. you know, kind of a buffoon and then turning into the great leader who was uh, successful at Agincourt, at uh, that critical point in the in the history of, of Great Britain. Um, there's no greater writer than Shakespeare. Uh, great writers give us profound insights. I actually do leadership retreats where we look at literature and, and, and my clients will say, David, why aren't we reading, you know, uh, the Sloan Management Review, which is fine, nothing against the MIT or Sloan Management Review. Mm -hmm. I say, because you know, there's the reason these are great writers and great works of literature is because they have unparalleled deep insights into human nature. 
So I, I, I would read Dan Kahneman, who's an amazing person, has a lot of humility and learning orientation, by the way, and uh, a certain, you know, Renaissance English playwright and poet that many have heard of, those three plays particularly. Brilliant. Oh, wow. Love that. Love it. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Last couple of questions. Um, if you could hone in on one, what is the most important leadership trait in your opinion? I think compassion and care for others. Wow. It unleashes so much power, so much value. Nothing is a close second. I'm assuming a person is good at their job and experienced yes. and intelligent and a good communicator, but yeah. Brilliant. And here, here, I agree 200% on that one. What an answer. Fantastic. Now, would that be the same answer if I asked you the most important leadership meta skill for the future? Well, skill is a little different from attribute. So we yep. think a lot about um, skills taxonomies a bit separate from job requirements, right? Skills are more fungible, right? They're more broadly and variably applicable. Uh, than, than some sort of task uh, requirements or competencies. Um, so I think the, the critical skill is really, I'll call it digital acumen, being comfortable with welcoming of AI, comfortable with the inherent value of data and the strategic importance of categorizing and utilizing data. And I'll note that's, that's independent of a uh, person's uh, age and stage of life. So I'm a baby boomer uh, and love uh, data and often push my clients to innovative uses thereof, particularly some of the emerging AI trends. And I know people who are Gen Xs and other Gens who are not as open to it. So it's actually one of those personal qualities that is not so correlated to a demographic cohort, uh, but is, I think, the most important thing for the future. Got it. Okay. Great answer again. Love that. Okay. So parting advice. I know we moved a little bit away from all design or extraction. Now we, we're honing in on the, the leader and the leadership kind of skills themselves. So as a parting advice, what would you give to um, fast growing companies regarding the identification and development of leadership qualities that are crucial for sustaining growth? I would think of it in two categories. One is yep. what will drive the business results that will or will not pay your salaries and attract capital, you know, as, as from from an investment or relations point of view. I think I think that that's we're all in business, even if you're a not for profit or a family firm or privately held company organization. That's 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 one thing to think about. It's just the acumen, the ability. Some people resist thinking in those terms, and others do it naturally, and it's not. Uh, independent of the kind of compassionate qualities I talked about before, right? If they can all go together, the same person. I'm actually working with the headmaster of a very important uh, faith-based uh, school, very elite secondary school, uh, part of a religious and educational tradition that's been around for many centuries. And he has the business acumen of a Fortune 100 CEO. He's just investing his career in helping young people become fine young adults. So, so, so the first is around the business acumen thing, and and then the second 
attribute I, I do think has got to be the learning orientation, just restlessly seeking for new bodies of knowledge for challenges to your assumptions. You probably will still hold many of the same assumptions because there's a good reason to have them, but just to be open to other points of view will 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 endear you to others who will might might think they would disagree with you based upon who you are, where you've come from. And that's been the story of my life. I, I have uh, I think oftentimes surprised, you know, people who look at a a guy with an Ivy League PhD from the Northeast and in, in the in the states, and as I've done business in dozens of countries and dozens of kinds of organizations, it's uh, some people sometimes conclude that what they would expect from someone like me is different from what they get. I'm just using myself as an example. All of us can be on that journey of pleasantly surprising those we interact with. Brilliant! Oh my God! Oh, so so David, um, I feel as though we're kindred spirits. I think so too, Richard. I've enjoyed this. This has been fantastic. And, uh, you know, you paid a couple of compliments, but uh, this is really back at you. I've learned so much from this past hour or so. Dave, this is just tremendous wisdom bites. Uh, you know, not only um, have I, you know, been part of your high intellect in this one hour, but more so, more, more so, I would say it's more spiritual intelligence. And what you talked about bringing the whole being um, and elevating humanity like, doesn't resonate. I mean, it just resonates with me, you know, so much. So thank you for that. Couldn't have resonated more is what I'm very kind to say that and, and and feel feel the same way. And I've, I've admired your podcast and I've known you as much by reputation as by our own conversations. But that will change. Well, let's let's be in closer touch in 2024. And uh, when I come to Florida, or you come to the Northeast. I would together. love that. I would love that. David. Right. Thank you very much. That was superb. All the very best to you now. My pleasure. Thank Happy you. Happy New Year, Richard, and to all your listeners. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope that you found today's session valuable. If so, please follow me on Instagram at outram.richard and post your comments. Thank you again. Until the next podcast.